We welcome you to this time of praise and worship here at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. With today's message by our pastor, Dr. Buckner Fanning, we hope and pray the Lord will speak to you in these next few moments as we endeavor to enrich our hearts and lives through prayer and worship. Words penned by David from the 139th Psalm, one of my favorite psalms. I believe it's, it is Martha's favorite. Let me read you portions of it. O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit or stand, when far away you know my every thought. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You both precede and follow me and place your hand of blessing on my head. This is just too glorious, too wonderful to believe. I can never be lost to your spirit. I can never get away from my God. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the winds of the morning to the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. If I try to hide in the darkness, the night becomes light around me. For even darkness cannot hide from God. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. How precious it is, Lord, to realize you're thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn toward me. And when I awaken in the morning, you're still thinking of me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Point out anything in me that makes you sad and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Isn't that magnificent? What marvelous words. Let's join hands and thank the author of these words for what he has said through his servant David to us and what the Lord will say to us through this whole service with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, we've come a lot of different ways to come to this place today and from a lot of different places, both literally and figuratively. Some people are coming today, Lord, out of a time of grief and sorrow. Some are coming with apprehension and fear about tomorrow, uncertainties about the present, maybe doctor's appointments this week that rise up before us as we pray and wonder what the verdict is going to be. We pray, Father, for people, all of us who come here with all the baggage of life, and we come to unpack it here in front of you and open our hearts to you and for you to take out anything that doesn't belong there and put some fresh new things there so that when we leave here, we will be equipped in a new way for meeting the vicissitudes of life, whatever they might be. We love you, we love one another, and we pray for one another. We pray for your people worshiping wherever they might be today, whatever denomination, whatever land, whatever language, we pray for them. And we lift all of your people up today for your blessing. We need you, Lord. Without you, we can do nothing. So speak to us and through us today. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Really wonderful to be here with you. You minister to me just by your presence, your prayers. I pray that what we sing and say and do here will be a source of ministry to you. 
because without the Lord's Spirit and the Lord's presence, it will be just sounding brass and clanging cymbal, and without Him we can do nothing. I was just sitting there praying, saying, Lord, I know I can't do this, but I want you to say through me what needs to be said to myself and to all of the folks that are here. So I pray God will use these words to help you. Um, I had an unrelated but interesting conversation yesterday with a good friend, Bob Castleberry, who's probably here somewhere, a neighbor. I was out in the front yard, and uh, he came by and lives two doors down, and, and we got to visiting, talking together. And he was here last Sunday and heard the story uh, that I told about whatever falls off, just keep on dancing. And, uh, and so it, anyway, uh, we talked about that story. He said, Buck, let me tell you an interesting thing that happened. He said, this fellow went to, the, to a retirement home, to a rest home, to visit someone. And while there, he saw a face of, of, of a man he thought he knew. And he saw that fellow and he couldn't recall his name. And he walked up to him and he said, excuse me, sir, but what's your name? There was a long pause, and the man said, when do you need to know? <laughs> Isn't that terrific? I, <laughs> I just heard after the early service, and I told that story, uh, Betty Howe, a dear friend, told me, said, uh, she calls those uh, mature moments. <laughs> Isn't that good? What I'm gonna say is I'm having an M&M here. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm having a mature moment trying to get my mind working. Uh, thanks, Bob, for that good story. Uh, this, uh, this is also a true story. It happened in England. It happened at an Anglican church, St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Southampton. It was a horribly hot day like we've had in San Antonio here the last few days. It was just oppressively hot. And the church sanctuary had no air conditioning. So the minister of the church got up that Sunday morning and he said, this morning I'm going to preach the shortest sermon ever preached in the history of Christianity. And this was his sermon. If you think it's hot here, <laughs> he hadn't finished yet. Got two more words. If you think it's hot here, just wait. <laughs> kind of an Anglican fire and brimstone sermon, would you not say? Well, I don't want you to wait until you die to meet the Lord. I want you to let the Lord meet you while you're alive because he'll make your life better. He'll be a friend to you that sticks closer than a brother. And I want to encourage you to meet him now so that when you meet him then, he'll say to you, welcome home to the place I prepared for you. So if you've never met him, meet him today. You'll never meet anybody you'll like better and love more, and that will do more for your life. You know, years ago, I used to occasionally hear someone give a testimony and talk about all the things they gave up following the Lord, all the things they'd given up to follow Jesus. 
And as I began to examine my own life and think about some of the things that happened to me after I got my own life, uh, made some decisions to get my own life uh, on track with God and asked the Lord to guide me and lead me and let me do it persistently and consistently, uh, I realized, you know, I didn't give up anything worth having to follow Jesus. Now, I threw away some trash, but I didn't give up anything to follow him. And he so abundantly blessed my life that whatever went out was so completely filled by his love and grace that whatever it was, I don't even miss. So I don't want you to wait to meet the Lord. I want you to meet him now. I want to let my good friend David uh, introduce uh, the Lord to you this morning, and I'm going to add some words to his. Uh, next to the Lord, my favorite personality in the Bible is David. And I want, uh, I want him to introduce uh, the Lord to you this morning through some words from the 34th Psalm. Now the background of this Psalm is David is being hunted and hounded and, uh, and he has escaped. He's escaped from Abimelech. He, he, he was those number of years, he was in terrible trouble as Saul was trying to kill him. Things were not going well for him at all. But he wrote this Psalm after he had been delivered from a very critical and crucial situation. And so let me read some of it to you. I'm reading from the Living Bible. I will praise the Lord no matter what happens. I will constantly speak of his glories and grace. I will boast of all his kindness to me. Let all who are discouraged take heart. If you're here today and discouraged, take heart. Let us praise the Lord together and exalt his name. For I cried to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Others, too, were radiant at what he did for them. Theirs was no downcast look of rejection. This poor man, I think he's pointing to himself when he says this. This poor man, this poor man, David, cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Oh, put God to the test and see how kind he is. The better translation is, taste and see that the Lord is good. Peterson translates that, open your mouths and taste, open your eyes and see how good the Lord is. Blessed are you who run to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good and his mercy shower down on all who trust in him. If you belong to the Lord, reverence him, for everyone who does this has everything he needs. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those of us who reverence the Lord will never lack any good thing. And now to the 18th verse, the Lord is close to those whose hearts are breaking. And there's some here today he rescues those who are humbly sorry for their sins. I assume that's all of us here today. The good man does not escape all troubles. He has them too. But the Lord helps him in each and every one. And he concludes, everyone who takes refuge in him will be fully pardoned. Now, how can you be to God like that? How can you find a God like that? A God that will free you from your fears, that will rescue you, 
and save you and restore you and pardon you and comfort you. What a great God he is, full of mercy and full of grace. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that an interesting combination of words? He doesn't say look and see or examine and see or observe and see or think and see, but taste and see. Taste. In other words, if you will just try the Lord, if you will just taste, you may just lick at the spoon, if you will just taste him, let him get inside of you, let him get ingested into your mind and into your heart and into your life, you just taste him and suddenly you will see him not from an objective standpoint of observation, but from a subjective standpoint of experiential knowledge. You will know him and you will know that he is good. You'll taste and see that the Lord is good. Some people don't present a God that's very good. Some people don't think God is good. They've not met the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is good. Taste and see if he's not good. There's no taste like it. And you'll never forget it. And once you've tasted him, what do you do? You want more. You want more. You want more. You want more. Have you ever eaten a banana split? Have you ever eaten a banana split? You awake? You with me? Okay. <laughs> Made you hungry when I said that, didn't I? Um, you can see pictures of banana splits. If you've never ate one, they won't do much for you. But if you've ever eaten one and you see a picture, oh, your taste buds just begin to vibrate. And you can, you can sort of taste it when you haven't even tasted it when you see a picture of it, because it's become a part of you. You let Jesus Christ become a part of you, and everything you see that's the handiwork of his love and grace in the world will just create that appetite within you. You'll want more of his love and more of his grace and more of the banana split of his incomparable love. It's not really related to this sermon, but I want to tell you a story about a banana split. We had landed, we had landed in Tel Aviv year, a number of years ago, one of the trips we were taking, and uh, had a group, and we got to Tel Aviv about uh, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, checked into the hotel there, right on the beach of Tel Aviv, beautiful Mediterranean, had the rest of the afternoon and evening to rest, and then the next morning we would begin touring. But um, about eight of us were, went out there on the veranda of the hotel and had a big canopy uh, over the table, and uh, I knew they had wonderful ice cream in Israel for I'd eaten it before. And this very ebullient, positive, enthusiastic Jewish waiter walked up and said to all of us, what do you all want? I said, do you happen to have banana splits? Oh, he said, banana splits. We've got the best banana split in the Middle East. I said, we'll take eight of them. <laughs> he went away and he came back in a few moments and he said, Big smile on his face. The most positive man I nearly ever met. He said, let me tell you, we've got chocolate ice cream. We've got vanilla ice cream. We've got strawberry ice cream. We've got the best toppings in the Middle East, but today we're out of bananas. But, <laughs> but I'm going to bring you the best banana split you have ever eaten. We bought it. We fell for it, and he brought a bunch of ice cream out there, and all of us had had banana splits, and because we'd had them, I could taste bananas just in my imagination. <laughs> 
He so convinced me. Let me tell you something. If you taste and you'll see that the Lord is good and there'll be things that happen in life, they may not always live up to your desired expectations, but suddenly you'll feel the taste of the grace of God inside of your life. Don't put him off. Don't postpone trusting him who loves you and wants to be a part of your life. He will bring such wonderful things into your life. I want you to see how good he is to make life better for every one of us. And you know how he does it, and he tells us this in, in 1 Peter in the second chapter. I've used this passage before, and it's very descriptive of what the Lord does. He, he displaces those things in our lives that are detrimental to us and harmful to us and to other people. He displaces those by coming in with his love and grace. If we'll just taste him, then we'll start hungering for him, and he'll get more and more into us, and his spirit will more and more fill us, and certain things will begin to be expelled from our lives. Christian growth is not so much abstinence, abstinence as it is replacement or displacement. Listen to this. Now this is Simon Peter. He's the David of the New Testament. David is the Simon Peter of the Old Testament. They both came from left field to get things right with the Lord. Here's what Paul says. So get rid of your, Peter, excuse me. So get rid of your feelings of hatred. Don't just pretend to be good. Be done with dishonesty and jealousy and talking about others behind their backs. Get rid of all that stuff. Well, how can you get rid of that? You cannot do it. I cannot do it. How can you not think a thought? When you think a thought, you're telling you, when you tell yourself not to think a thought, you're reminding yourself of that thought, and all you're doing is just getting in the squirrel cage of remembrance. How do you get this stuff out of your life? How do you get that stuff out of your life? How do you get something new in there to displace all of that? Well, he tells us here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He picks up on that out of the psalm. Taste the Lord. Taste the grace of God. Now that you realize how kind the Lord is, now that you have tasted the Lord, now that you have tasted him, put away all evil, all deception, envy, and fraud, long to grow up in the fullness of salvation, cry for this. Cry for more of this banana split of God's incomparable grace. Cry for this as a baby cries for his milk. And as you cry for him, as he comes into your life, when you first taste him, he comes in, and then he'll come, and then he'll come some more, and he'll be there, and he'll fill you, and he'll begin to push all this stuff out. Just how do you get rid of the darkness in a room? You don't go in and just curse the darkness, preach against the darkness, have seminars on how to remove the darkness. You bring in light. And the light dispels the darkness. The darkness cannot hold it back. How do you get rid of a cold in a room? What do you do? You turn on the heat, and the warmth comes in, and the cold is expelled. How do you get rid of hatred? Let the love of Christ come into your life. What does he do? For malice, he puts his love in your life. Love one another, he says. Love one another as I love you. Now, I cannot do that without his spirit within me. But if I taste him and let him into my life, he will come with increasing presence, and he'll push that hatred out. You know, the Bible says whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whoever hates is a murderer. That's serious. Oh, I pray that no one would ever turn hatred into pulling the trigger. Unfortunately, thousands of people do. 
But the problem doesn't begin with the finger. The problem begins in the heart. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. Get rid of hatred. I tell you that, this is, unfortunately, I hear hatred at times coming out of the lips of devoted Christian people. Harsh things being said about other people. Harsh things, unchristian things being said about folk. And I don't listen to talk shows generally, but every now and then I'll listen to a Christian talk show and sometimes I'll hear people say things that just a Christian ought not to be saying. Expressing attitudes that Christians ought not to be expressing. And I turn it to some music. Hatred. We have an epidemic of it in America. Racial hatred, religious hatred, bigotry. The love of God will come and expel that stuff. Replace that malice with love. Guile, he says. Lay aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speakings. He'll replace the guile with honesty. Guile means deception. means having the hands of Esau and the voice of Jacob. means praising like a saint and practicing like Satan's. Deception. Hypocrisy. Play acting. The Lord will replace that with honesty, being real, being genuine, being who you are, being down to earth. Envy. How will he expel envy? He will expel envy by giving you the spirit of giving. You start giving, God will begin to bless you. You start giving to others. You start giving to the Lord's work, and greed will begin to dissipate in your life. Greed will begin to dissipate in your life. It'll be displaced by love for others. And evil speaking will be replaced by kindness, by consideration, by thoughtfulness. The sins of the tongue. The Bible says a great deal about sins of the tongue. Gossip, backbiting, evil speakings about others. Heard about a person that was, they described him as an individual who had a keen sense of rumor. I'm afraid there's some people who interpret the word confidential as meaning you just tell one person at a time. <laughs> I want to tell you something in confidence, okay? And I'll only tell, I won't tell a hundred people, I'll just tell one person and then another person and then another person. I won't get up and announce it to 100 people. I'll just tell 100 people one at a time. Uh, Sam Jones was a Methodist evangelist and preacher of an earlier generation, late 1800s and early 1900s. I never heard him, of course, but my grandmother did. My grandmother, Buckner, Julia Buckner, lived to be over 90, and she heard all of them back in those days, and she heard Sam Jones. She was a great big man, had a huge handlebar mustache, was a powerful preacher. And he preached on the sins of the tongue once. And he just was in a crusade and a revival. And he talked about backbiting and gossiping as just as the Bible does. And, and he was preaching about it pretty hard and coming down on it pretty hard. And after the service, a woman came up to him and said, Oh, Brother Jones, Brother Jones, I've been a gossiper and I have spread tales around about people. And I've said things I ought not to say. Oh, Brother, Brother Jones, I want to lay my tongue on the altar for God. 
Sam Jones said, lady, this altar's only about 30 feet long. I don't know whether, I don't know whether it'll hold it or not. Well, you say that was kind of a cruel thing to say. Well, maybe so, but I doubt if it was as cruel as the things she'd been saying about other people. Let me read you something that the half-brother of Jesus wrote, wrote about. You know, after Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary and Joseph had children. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, and one of them was James. James, none of the family, were, uh, none of the brothers and sisters were followers of the Lord, never believed in him until after his resurrection. They all became Christians and then leaders in the church, and James became pastor uh, of the church later. And listen to what he wrote in the third chapter of the book that bears his name. Dear brothers, don't be too eager to tell others their faults. We all make many mistakes. And when we teachers of religion, we preachers, we evangelists, we Sunday school teachers who should know better do wrong, our punishment will be greater than it would be for others. God holds us accountable, should, and does. If anyone can control his tongue, it proves he has perfect control over himself in every other way. And then he gives two good examples. He says, you can change the direction of a horse just by a little bit in, in his mouth. You can change the direction of a ship just by a little touch of the rudder. And then he says this, so also the tongue is a small thing, but, can, but what enormous damage it can do. A great forest can be set on fire by one tiny spark and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness and poisons every part of the body and the tongue is set on fire by hell itself and can turn our whole lives into a blazing flame of destruction and disaster. You know why I think James was so strong about criticism and about the sins of the tongue is because he'd heard what people said about his brother. He'd grown up with him He'd heard the, the remarks made about him and the lies made about him and the rumors that got passed. Oh, he's a friend of sinners and publicans. He's a wine-bibber and a drunkard. He's an illegitimate child. And even though James didn't believe in the divinity of his half-brother at that point, don't you know that did something to him about people talking, 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 talking? He knew his brother wasn't like that. There was never a man more criticized, more maligned, more lied about on the face of the earth than Jesus Christ. And here's his half-brother James coming to his defense and telling those early Christians, you control your tongue. Control your tongue. Now I'll say a special word to young people. Um, a demographic mathematician from Harvard said, that middle age now begins at 45 and goes to 75. Because of the change of population in America, middle age is now from 45 to 75. I'm middle-aged. <laughs> How many of you didn't know until you came in here that you were middle-aged? You see what you get by coming to this church? I mean, I just subtracted years from your life. You came here thinking you were an old person. You're walking out of here thinking you're middle-aged, and you are, you're middle-aged. That means that everybody under 45 is young. And a lot of folks over 45 are young in spirit. So I want to say something about, particularly though to youth, there are a lot of young people up in the, up in the balcony, and there were a, lot, a number of them here this morning. There'll be a lot of them here tonight. And uh, I want to say a word to them, and I want to say a word to married young adults, and married and single adults, young single adults. And 
I wanted to go back and let David say a word to you. Uh, the 10th to the 14th verse of the 34th Psalm, he says, sons and daughters, come and listen to me teach you the importance of trusting and fearing the Lord. Do you want a long, good life? Then watch your tongue, keep your lips from lying, turn from all known sin, and spend your time in doing good. Try to live in peace with everyone and work hard at it. It is so important at this point in your life, those of you who've been to camp, junior high school and senior high school and preteens, it is so important that you have made decisions and some of you will register them this morning, I assume, and I hope and pray, and or tonight or next Sunday. But I urge you while you are young to make a commitment to the Lord that you are going to follow through on for your good and for the welfare of your life the rest of your days. It is so important that you make this decision and you make it with an, in, an intentional commitment to follow through on it and not to let the spirit subside, not to let the commitment be put on hold, not let your heart grow cold, not get indifferent to reading the Word of God and to praying and to being in church and in Sunday school. And let me say, I believe you need to be in both church and Sunday school. I say that to everybody. If you're only in Sunday school and not in church, you're missing part of Christian growth. And if you're only in church and not in Sunday school or vice versa, you're missing part of Christian growth. We all need to be together as much as possible. And all of you young people, we need you in here with us. And you need us. We all need one another. One of the concerns I have, I've been preaching a good long while. It, it dawned on me just a few weeks ago that 50 years ago this year, I was licensed to preach the gospel. I've been preaching 50 years this year. 50 years ago, You didn't think I was that old, did you? Huh? When, uh, 50 years ago, I was licensed to preach in the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, my home church. 50 years ago this summer, I was out in youth revivals preaching uh, in revival meetings, along with my friend Howard Butt, who's here today. One of the concerns that every evangelist, every pastor, everyone who tries to share the gospel with people, one of the concerns we all have is that people make decisions and we believe those decisions are sincere and we're grateful for them and thank God for them. But we wonder why some of them after a week or a month or six months or a year seem to just kind of slip away into indifference. That's a heartbreaking thing. For 38 years now I've been your pastor and for 38 years we've been to camp and come back from camp, and decisions have been made, and wonderful decisions. So many of them have followed through in tremendous ways to be leaders in this church now, and leaders in other churches, and pastors, and evangelists, and educators, and ministers of music out from all over, all over the world now because of the influence of this church. But some didn't stay with it. Some got back into town, they got back with the crowd, maybe the wrong crowd, and they got in school, and 
they'd kind of come to church occasionally, they'd read their Bible occasionally, and then they'd be gone. That's happened every year for 38 years, and I'm praying that won't happen this year. I'm praying that six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, your faith will be stronger than it is now, and your devotion to the Lord will be greater than it is now, and your love for the Lord will be sounder and more firm than it even is now. I pray that for you, because I tell you, it's a terrible thing to forget God. Listen to Isaiah in the first chapter. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people don't remember. They've forgotten me. The Earl of Rochester said, coming as he did to the end of a long and unscrupulous life, would to God I'd been born a foul legger, a beggar, or a foul leper, a blind beggar, or a foul leper, than to have lived and forgotten God. I want to point you for just a moment to a man in the Old Testament. All of you know about him. His name is Solomon. And Solomon gives some great advice along toward the end of his life to all of you young folks, 45 and under. Don't let the excitement of being young cause you to forget about your Creator. Don't get carried away by the emotions of your youthfulness. And then in the sixth verse, remember your Creator now while you were young. Remember Him. He'd forgotten. That's why he's writing this. You need to remember. You need to start when you're young, and you need to stay with it because growth in Christianity is not on the basis of intensity, but on the basis of consistency and persistency. He didn't stay with it. You go back and read the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. Boy, you'll hear all the tremendous things he did, all the accomplishments of Solomon. Fantastic, incomparable, inimitable. You can wrap them up in three words. Three words that about 90% of the people in America think is what it makes to make you happy and be successful. He had wealth, and he had wisdom, and he had women. He had all three in abundance. And if you read the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, when he goes through the catalog of accomplishments in his life, all of these things under the heading of wealth, wisdom, and women, do you know what you'll read five different times? You will hear him say every one of those is chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind, and coming up with an empty handful of nothing. Remember, remember, remember. Indifference is the parent of forgetfulness, and forgetfulness is the fountain of vice. Remembrance is the wellspring of virtue, and forgetfulness is the fountain of vice. You know what happens to folks? We talk about backsliding, backsliders. What is a backslider? Sometimes we have in our mind a backslider is someone who turns his back on God. 
Someone who looks at God and then shakes his fist in the face of God and turns his back on him and says, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And that's not a backslider. A backslider is someone who looks at the Lord all of the time and just moves away backward. That's what the word literally says. He moves away backward. And as you move away backward, you know what happens to him? He gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you back away far enough and here are the steps. Backsliding is not facing God and shaking your fist. It's facing God and moving away backward. That's what happened to Solomon. That's what I pray will not happen to you, to you, to you, or to me, or to any of us, any of us. Not only can individuals forget God, churches can forget God. Read the second chapter of the book of the Revelation. John writing to the church that he pastored, led by the Spirit of God. He said, boy, church, you've done terrific things. You've done marvelous things, wonderful things. Same things that could be said about Trinity. But you know what he says in the fourth verse of the second chapter? Led by the Spirit of God to say this to the church. Yet there is one thing wrong. You don't love me like you did at first. Do we? Do we still have that first love? Has that love for him grown? Have we tasted of the love of God and wanted more of the fullness of God? Paul's prayer that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and that you may know the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ. Churches can get so busy and so successful in all of their endeavors and activities and can become a grand and successful enterprise and be cold and loveless and dead. What makes a church alive is love. The love of God in our hearts, in our relationship to one another, and in our concern for the world around us. I want to close with a poem. My favorite preachers, G.A. Studdard Kennedy, never met him of course, he pastored in Great Britain during mainly World War I, during the 19, early 1900s. And he went to be with the troops in France in the bitterness of World War I. And he was called Woodbine Willie. That was his nickname. And he was known as the People's Padre. Studdard Kennedy. I've read so many of his sermons. and What a marvelous man. He was a great writer. He wrote a little poem I want to recite for you this morning. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet. They made a Calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to San Antonio, they just simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They just let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. 
And still he cried, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the street without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and prayed for Calvary. Indifference. Maybe the worst thing we can do to our Lord to be indifferent. Simon, do you love me? He asked. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Buckner, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. And he calls you not by name. He knows your name. And he calls your name. And he asks you the same question he asked Simon. Do you love me? What is your answer? Trinity Baptist Church, do you love me? Well, we sing it a lot, Lord. No, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So I invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Just take a taste. You say, Bugner, I have questions. I have some doubts. Will you just act on what faith you have? As much of yourself as you know, will you give to as much of the Lord as you know? You say, well, Bugner, I have questions. So do I. But I'm putting my faith in him. I've tasted him, and he's never let me down. He's kept every promise that he ever made and more. Let me make a proposition to you. If you test him, that's what it says, try him, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just give him a chance in your life. Just put your faith into him, however little that faith may be. It may be small as a grain of mustard seed. But if you just put whatever faith you have in him, with all of your questions or doubts, whatever they might be, if you just put your faith and trust in him, if Jesus Christ doesn't live up to his promises, to every promise that he has made in here, you just write him off. You just forget him. I've never met anybody in the world that trusted him who didn't find grace greater than all their sin, love greater than all of their lovelessness, hope greater than all of their hopelessness. You'll never regret it. Never will. So will you come? Taste and see that he is good. Give your heart to him as Savior. Give your life to him in his church.
Give your spirit to him in rededication, either publicly or privately. Well, I've made public rededications two or three times in my life. I rededicate my life every day, sometimes more than once a day. But there have been times when I've walked down an aisle to say, I want to rededicate my life to the Lord. If God impresses you to do that, he has a reason for it, for you and for the influence on others. So whatever he impresses you to do today, don't be indifferent to it. He says, come. I extend his invitation on his behalf. Come.